the event itself is amazing implicitly, but really it's the community that surrounds the entire event that makes it, you know, to me, really extraordinary and next level. And so my advice would be if, if you're on the fence about it, you know, d dive in, come, come join this incredible community, this incredible group of people, because it'll be a weekend of your life that will extend in positive ways, you know, well beyond that with, with the community and the other things that inspires you to dream up and goals that you set in your life. That's world record holder and amazing human being, Colin O'Brady. And I'm your host, Travis McKenzie. Welcome to Inner Voice with Travis McKenzie. Oh man, it brings me great joy to bring you this episode. I've been sitting on this one for a while and I cannot believe it's finally time to share this conversation with you all. If you've subscribed to the Inner Voice emails and read our features, you've seen that things have been a little quiet of late. That's mostly due to the work I've been doing with the team from 29029. And if you haven't heard of 29029 before, Colin gives a great description of the event and the community that surrounds the weekend experience. Basically, you have 36 hours to hike a private mountain as many times as you can until you reach 29,029 feet, which is the equivalent of Mount Everest. I've been lucky to attend the two events in 2019 in Stratton, Vermont and Utah, and have shared the stories of the incredible humans who participate in this challenge, many of them pushing themselves further than they ever thought possible. And in the spirit of Inner Voice, which, as you know, is a platform to acknowledge the incredible feats of athletes and the mindset it takes for them to get to the top, 29029 provides that opportunity in spades. One of the co-founders of 29029 and friend, Mark Hodelik, introduced Colin and I. And if you don't know Colin, today you'll hear his incredible story. I'm stoked to bring it to you, and I have no doubt that you'll learn something new and interesting about him and yourself. He gives us all permission to dream bigger and start simply by taking one step at a time. I have no doubt, given everything that he has achieved, that Colin is indeed the world's greatest endurance athlete. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Well, I'm super excited to be here today with Colin O'Brady. I'm sure most of you have heard the name, world record-holding endurance athlete, explorer, speaker, and incredible storyteller. Colin, how are you, mate? Great. It's great to be here. Um, as I mentioned, incredible storyteller. I've actually been doing quite a bit of research, and I'll talk to you about the research that I did uh, in a moment, but I want to go back a ways. Um, I want to go back in your story and talk about your wife, first of all, because you are you do an amazing job of talking about her, and she is the logistics queen and logistics uh, uh, maven uh, in your life. But I want to talk about the story where you two met, and I've heard you talk about STA travel, so we're aging ourselves, but that was when I did my first trip from Australia to the US in 2005. I used STA travel, so to hear you talk about that was awesome. And you got the included stopover in Fiji, and that's where you met Jenna. Over to you. Yeah, absolutely. So I love that you bring up STA travel because I've said that a few <laughs> times to young, younger people and they look at me like I'm crazy. Like, I don't it? get it. You walk to a place and talk to a person to buy a plane ticket. Like, they're just as if I'm like speaking a different language. Um, so, yes, uh, I graduated college in 2006 and uh, wanted to travel around the world, didn't have a lot of money. I had painted houses in the summer when I was a kid and always kind of had this dream of, you know, seeing the world a little bit. So, in the summer of 2007, I finally had cobbled together, you know, a few thousand bucks and decided to take a backpack and a surfboard and kind of head into the world 
to you know live in youth hostels and, and hitchhike around. I know in Australia that concept of backpacking is for, for particularly a little bit more commonplace, but uh, us Americans unfortunately don't often uh, get passports and go see the world in the same uh, rate that Australians do. But uh, I really wanted to do that, so I walked into an SCA travel. I was uh, at the time um, in my dad's uh, uh, going to be at my dad's house in Hawaii. My dad's an organic farmer on the North Shore of Kauai, and uh, I. <clears throat> Went in there and they said, hey, you can have a free stop over in Fiji on your way to New Zealand. New Zealand is where I was trying to get to because I wanted to hitchhike through there and see the mountains and everything. Amazing things I heard about New Zealand. And I was like, well, shoot, I don't I have no itinerary. You know, sure. Why not? So I end up in Fiji and I end up going to this tiny little island uh, that you could walk around the circumference in in about five minutes. Just one of these just little tiny atolls with just one bar. Uh, you know, one, one little, you know, few bunk beds and whatever. And there's this beautiful girl standing on the beach. Um, and I uh, couldn't help myself, but strike up a conversation. And that ended up uh, being Jenna. She was uh, an American. She's an American from Massachusetts, but she was actually studying abroad at the University of Sydney. And uh, as you know, being a fellow Australian, it's not too far to get to Fiji and fairly inexpensive and whatnot. And so she had gone on Australia's spring break with some of her girlfriends to Fiji. And we just so happened to be there for about a day and a half overlapping. And so we met in that moment, uh, you know, an initial sparks flew, but it was also, hey, you know, we're going to see each other for a day or two. But uh, I kept her phone number and she was still living in Australia after going to New Zealand for two months. I arrived in Australia and she was the first phone call that I made from uh, dating myself again. I had no cell phone, so I called her from a pay phone and uh, we uh, reconnected in Australia and the rest is history. Here we are almost 13 years later and, you know, we're married and I've had built an extraordinary uh, life together. It's amazing. And obviously, you know, I talk about this uh, quite often is those moments of courage in your life where, you know, you, if you had seen her at a bar or at a beach or something in the US, you probably wouldn't have gone and talked to her. But the fact you were so far away from home, there's this like, oh, well, what have I got to lose? I'm going to go totally. and start talking to her. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right it was exactly like well what do i got to lose i'm just like yeah. out by myself in the world you know um and it's amazing you know you talk more about it potentially but as you as you said you know jenna of course it's amazing to have a, a loving you know supportive partner uh wife and i'm really grateful for that but our relationship has been so much more than that we really are business partners all the world record projects in the mountains and antarctica we've dreamed up together um, not as her just being like supportive. Okay, cool. That's your dream. Good luck with that. But really, she is, you know, as much uh, the, the success that we've had is as much related to her hard work, dedication. It's been her full, you know, career focus on building sponsorships and brands and storytelling and media, all of things that we didn't necessarily have a bunch of background in ourselves. But her and I, you know, from a from a whiteboard sitting in our one bedroom apartment together, figuring things out many years ago to where we are now has been amazing to be on that journey together and certainly live through many ups and downs and setbacks and failures, but to be in it together and really committed to supporting one another has been incredible. Yeah. Uh, and you do an amazing job of, of, of telling that and letting people know how much of a part she does play in that. So obviously happy wife, happy life. So keep that up. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, now I want to, I want to kind of jump forward a little bit and talk a little bit about um, your accident in Thailand and obviously, Obviously, um, well, not obviously to you, but I had a, a similar experience, not the same as you, but a moment in time where I was told that I wouldn't walk again and I had a, you know, a bad bike crash, broke my neck, um, was in hospital for three weeks, off work for three months and all of these things. And in those moments, and when you talk about it, I kind of think back to my own experience. But why don't you share a little bit about your story where you, you your accident in, in Thailand, because I think it is a big part of your journey, I yeah, guess. Huge turning point in my life. You know, I... Just after meeting Jenna, I was in Australia with her, 
And then the next stop on my uh, trip around the world was to go up to Thailand, to Southeast Asia. Um, and, uh, you know, it's an amazing experience at this point. I've been out in the world traveling for a few months and, you know, I'm Thailand doing Thailand on the cheap, as you obviously can do, like not, not much money in my pocket, but you can get by you know, a few bucks a day over there. And I'm on this tiny little beach in rural Thailand, Koh Tao in the Gulf of Thailand there. And uh, it's a fairly you know, common tourist activity, I suppose, on these beaches, you know, fire dancing of all sorts. And in this case, there was a, you know, a long jump rope that was lit on fire and people were you know, jumping underneath of it. And you know, I, I didn't think anything of it. I'm 22 years old at the time, kind of feeling invincible and out in the world. And I was like, sure, I'm going to try that. And unfortunately, it went terribly wrong for me. You know, the rope wrapped around my legs and let my body completely on fire to my neck because it splattered kerosene. Um, and, you know, survival mode kicked in when I needed it most. I jumped into the ocean to extinguish the flames, which ultimately saved my life, but not before about 25% of my body was severely burned, um, primarily my legs and feet. Fortunately, I got in the water just fast enough to put out um, the fire on my clothes before I got much damage to my torso and upper body. Um, but, you know, I was in the middle of nowhere. There was no proper hotel or hospital. I had, uh, you know, a dirt, dirt uh, moped ride down a dirt path to a one-room nursing station where I underwent you know, you know, it's a, a bunch of surgeries there and these tiny little hospitals in the islands, um, you know, no, no proper medical facility. There's a cat running around my bed in the makeshift ICU. I mean, it was, I was far from home. Yeah. And, you know, the real, you know, kind of beacon of light in this whole thing, you know, the worst part about it was, you know, the doctors, as you mentioned, walking in the saying to me, you know, early on, hey, look, you'll probably never walk again. Normally, they figured the damage was so bad to my legs, particularly in the ligaments and skin and ankle joints and stuff that I would be have limited mobility throughout the rest of my life. And I had been a, you know, an athlete before that I was a collegiate swimmer and, you know, just kind of thought of myself as sort of an active kind of guy. And so having that news, I think that news for any person, you know, would just be devastating. And so the physical trauma was bad, but the emotional trauma was even more significant. But uh, my mother arrived about the fourth or fifth day into this ordeal. And uh, I know now she was sort of crying and pleading with the doctors in the hallways for good news. Obviously, very scary for a mother to see their child in this state. But uh, fortunately for me, really, she never really showed me her fear. And instead, she um, <clears throat> really kind of came into my hospital room with this sort of smile on her face and this air of positivity, daring me to kind of dream about the future and uh, encouraged me to set a goal. And, you know, immediately I was like, what are you talking about, mom? You know, life's over. Yeah. But the goal that I ultimately kind of came upon was this goal of racing a triathlon one day, you know, not something I'd ever done, but I'd, you know, I'd seen the Kona Olympic, mm -hmm. the Kona coverage on NBC when I was a kid and always been fascinated, like, oh, one day I want to do this. And in this moment of complete, you know, devastation in my body, it was like, well, if I could cross a finish line at a triathlon someday, you know, yeah. I feel like I would be recovered um, or at least, you know, showing some signs of recovery. And my mom really kind of just pushed me forwards in that that moment. It was really powerful. You know, we it was several months I was in the Thai hospital till I got home. And then that first day, you know, I, I didn't take a single step in Thailand. You know, I was carried on and off the plane in Thailand, placed in a wheelchair when I got home. And, you know, my mother, a uh, big turning point for me was she was like, OK, you've said you have this triathlon goal, like it's time to get to it. And so she actually grabs this wooden chair from our kitchen table um, in my home in Portland and places it one step in front of my wheelchair and says, today you need to figure out how to take your very first step into this chair in front of you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it took me many hours to take that first step, but that was my first step on this long road to recovery, which, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, it was 18 months, you know, of learning how to walk again and ultimately kind of jogging, but just having this triathlon goal ever present in my mind the entire time. 
And eventually I moved to Chicago to take a job in finance, trying to kind of get on with my life and, you know, get out of my parents' basement, just kind of grow up uh, and move past this tragedy. But I honored that goal and I signed up for Chicago Triathlon and kind of the culmination of this chapter of my life. I, you know, raced the race, you know, hoping to just kind of finish and complete the race. But to my complete and utter surprise, I didn't just finish the race, but I won the entire race, you know, first place amateur out of, you know, 4,000 or so participants on the day. Um, which was a complete and utter surprise to me and uh, ultimately took my life in a, in a completely different direction. I ended up, you know, going into my job and, you know, quitting my job in finance on Monday and becoming a professional triathlete, which you very well know is not a certainly a <laughs> lucrative career path. Uh, um, but uh, gave me the opportunity. You know, I was I was curious at that moment of not just my own. I wasn't like, oh, wow, I won this race. I must be this superhuman athlete. It was more mm. back to this moment of thinking like what would have happened had my mom not forced me to look towards the future yeah. and set a measurable goal with triathlon. And I kind of realized like not just myself, but I believe all of us as humans, we have these reservoirs of untapped potential inside of us to achieve extraordinary things. And I wanted to pursue that curiosity within my own self through endurance sport and ultimately through, um, you know, racing professional triathlon, which I did for the next six years or so all over yeah. the world. Amazing. I, I, I get goosebumps when you tell that story because I think back to my time and I'm in the hospital and my mum flew from Australia pretty much the you know same time frame as your mum came from the US and she was there by my bedside for you know every single day while I was in hospital and stayed quite a while after I got out of hospital to help me recuperate and get back to normal life and um, my wife the same she was my girlfriend at the time we actually just started dating in the hmm. in the December or the end of December that year, and then the accident happened in March. So this was a very fresh new relationship. So yeah. my, and now you know now my wife we we took things real, rather quickly and uh, got engaged and married you know quite soon after. But for me it was a real turning point for the fact that it it really um, became clear to me what I wanted in life. Um, and it was this moment of clarity um, that I approached my recovery as an athlete. I wanted to race Ironman again. I set a goal of racing one year later, um, and and really approached my recovery as i say as an athlete for you i'm interested to hear from you how often did you think back to the accident um and your time in the thai hospital you know over the preceding months or the following few months and then more importantly how often do you kind of think back to it now obviously you tell that story quite often with your speaking and things like that but is it a conscious thought that comes back to you to be like oh wow like i've been through that or i've recovered from that yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, people often ask me a, a similar question, which is, you know, do you regret this accident? If you could go back in a time machine, would you jump the flaming jump rope or would you make a different decision? And it's mm -hmm. a weird kind of duality in my mind. On one hand, I wouldn't wish the sort of pain and trauma of that experience on my worst enemy, you know, of what I had to go through. But on the other side of that, I learned so much through this trauma, through this setback, through overcoming it and the guidance of my mother that actually unlocked this higher level of sort of potential within my own life. And so in that sense, it is something that I, you know, consistently go back to and recalibrate, you know, in some of these times, you know, whether that's, you know, climbing Mount Everest in a you know brutal storm or, um, you know, certainly what I just recently went through in Antarctica for you know two months alone out there pulling a 375 pound sled, you know, all of these types of things. It's a way to go back and say, like, you know what, like, I have actually felt worse physical pain than this. And I got through this like mm -hmm. this too shall pass, certainly when you can keep that mental sort of positivity moving yourself forward. And so for me, it's been a very powerful way to sort of recalibrate my mind and sort of some of the harder moments for sure. And also realize that 
you know, I've had other, certainly other setbacks in my life and, you know, my, my business career and, and different things, you know, moments that, you know, obviously things just don't always go your way in life. Totally. That's just kind of the way life is. Yep. But to remember that, like, wait a second, well, remember that thing that was like maybe the worst tra physically traumatic thing that happened that turned in the long run that actually I've been able to turn that into a positive in my life. And so when I'm in the kind of depths of despair in any one of these given moments where that's, you know, my heart rate beating out of my chest in a race or um, like I said, sort of, you know, personal ups and downs, it's a good reminder for me to go back there and go like, OK, like be patient, keep moving forwards. And this might manifest or turn into the next sort of great you know opportunity uh, in life. Yeah, and I think it's it's well said. And I often say to people that you know I I don't regret what happened to me either. And I also um, I also wouldn't want it to happen to anyone. And I feel I, but I also feel very grateful that it happened to me because I can control the way that I feel about it. Like when something bad happens to someone you love, or you lose a loved one, or what have you, or a bad thing happens to them, you have no control over how they're going to feel. So I feel very fortunate that you know my worst moment in my time happened to me because I could be the one to control the feelings that come from that. And I also was very conscious and aware not to always think back to it and be like a victim and, you know, this bad thing totally. to me and whatever. So maintaining that positive attitude. Um, now, one thing that I wanted to ask you about is obviously you get people who reach out to you all the time and talk about an insp how much of an inspiration to you are. How much does that mean to you to have people kind of looking up to you and, and using you as a barometer for them to be able to do more for their own lives? Yeah, you know, it's certainly, you know, super humbling for me to receive that. And, and certainly as the amount of press and media around my last project and things like that, you know, the amount of people reaching out um, has been very amplified. But also, you know, there's a, you know, there's a personal humility that comes with that. But it's also, you know, something that makes me smile, certainly that I get a lot of inspiration from. You know, I believe kind of my purpose, and you mentioned storytelling, you know, at the beginning of this interview, for me, the reason that I like to share my stories as widely as possible, you know, when I'm in Antarctica, it's not easy to like take pictures of myself in the middle of nowhere with frozen hands. And, you know, it takes, you know, I'm sending an image out every day, but that required me to carry, you know, already a super heavy sled. I've got like this extra, you know, satellite modem and then to upload one picture. Sometimes it takes like an hour through like almost like the slowest of all slow connections <laughs> you could possibly imagine. It's not like I'm surfing the internet and that's just going to an email to Jenna and then she's actually putting it on social media platforms so I can't actually see the platforms yeah but like why, why am I committed to doing that every single day it's not because I'm like desiring to be the athlete in the arena that everyone knows my name and watches me so they can just sit there and watch me blindly it's the opposite of that because I believe that by me pursuing what I'm passionate about and doing that authentically and sharing that with the world hopefully others gain from that and go and chase what their own goals and dreams are in their own life I've actually started to reframe in my mind, you know, obviously many years I've thought of myself as an athlete, but I've kind of reframed that as in thinking myself more as an artist mm -hmm. and that my canvas just happens to be endurance sports. And certainly I love talking to endurance athletes, but, you know, if endurance sports aren't your thing, that's totally fine. Like we all have these masterpieces inside of us and canvases that we want to paint on that could be business, entrepreneurship, love, you know, you know, the yeah. fine arts, whatever that might be. And I love nothing more, um, you know, there's kind of two types of comments and feedback that I can receive from people. One can be like, dude, you were the first person across Antarctica solo unsupported and assisted. Like you're such a badass." And like, sure, that's nice. It's a nice pat on the back, but way more meaningful to me is when I get responses from people that said like, Oh my God, I watched your Antarctica project. And now, 
you know, I put my running shoes on for the first time in five years because I have this goal for myself. Or, you know, I've been seeing and talking about this business I wanted to start, but it's always been a pipe dream. But like, I've actually, you know, started to write that business plan now and I'm actually going to go after it and do that. So it's like taking real action and accountability in people's own lives towards their own dreams by witnessing somebody else doing something. And I, of course, have been inspired by so many other people in my own life, including people that reach out to me. And so uh, to me, it's this beautiful kind of wheel of mm -hmm. inspiration and positivity. It's not just people reaching out to me to say, hey, thank you. You've inspired me to do this. Every time I read that, I hear these, these incredible things that other people are doing, and I start following them and are invested in their stories, and their stories inspire me. So it's this kind of reciprocal, beautiful, um, symbiotic relationship in that way that I am you know, really love. Yeah. No, it's, it, it is beautiful, and I think it's the essence of human connection, being able to connect with other humans. And obviously, social media has so many great things that you can you know, look up to people like yourself, or you can connect to those people who reach out to you. And people talk about how the, the negativity comes from it but i i i see it as an inspirational um way to to be in touch with the the world and it's a better way to connect with humans um you know because you're not having to dial up on and call someone from the phone on the payphone. <laughs> funny story i was actually riding on the weekend i rode from well this actually goes to my research piece i rode from boston to portland maine uh on the weekend so 250 k's nice um I was listening to some of the podcasts that you've done um, with Rich and a few others, uh, and halfway there, I stopped at Rye Beach, New Hampshire for my water bottles, and there was a payphone on the <laughs> wall at this bathroom. And I saw so the funny story about the uh, about the the payphone. I've seen one for the first time in how, however many years. Um, but I also um, one thing you mentioned about your mantra or the things that you would say to yourself: "I am strong. I am capable." In Antarctica, there was a few moments on the weekend where I'm like, "Oh man, I use that myself." Um, and another one was it was like 40 degrees or like 100 degrees Fahrenheit and you were talking about how cold it was in Antarctica and having to stop and, pull, and I was like, man, I could use some of the snow or the cold or the ice or the wind <laughs> today because uh, it was boiling hot. It was miserable. But um, yeah, so that's where I've done a lot of my research is kind of listening to you um, on these but also being able to use some of the things that you talked about. So why don't you um, let us know about that kind of you know, you wake up one morning, you say, I'm strong, I'm capable, and you use that as a bit of a mantra to push you through your 54 days in Antarctica. Yeah, you know, I'm a, a, a big believer. I love mantras, and there's been several mantras that have fueled me over time. But, you know, even you know, backing away from that for a second, I'm just a big believer that we are the stories that we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, some, you know, often as humans, we're kind of oriented to telling ourselves sort of negative things or limiting things like, oh, you know what, that's not for me, or I can't do that, or I'm not strong enough, or I'm not smart enough, or these types of things. And so I'm always hyper aware, and I'm guilty of that at times as well, just kind of that inner dialogue and that voice in our head. Like you said, you're riding along with 100 degrees. It's pretty yeah. easy to be like, man, I am so hot, so I'm hot. so thirsty, like yeah. this sucks, you know, whatever. I mean, trust me, I, you know, dragging this letter across Antarctica, there was many negative moments in my own mind, obviously. Um, but on the, you know, I really struggled in the first days of my expedition, um, and I kind of planned it for this whole year, and and I called my expedition the impossible first. Um, the reason I did that wasn't some sort of like cocky thing of like, people say it's impossible, but I know I can do it. It was the opposite. It was to say like people in the media, because, you know, a, a really kind of noteworthy adventure had died attempting the same project a few years before me. There have been some other failures along the way over, you know, a hundred year history of people, you know, attempting various versions of this project. Um, which is a, you know, a solo, unsupported, unaided crossing. And so what that means is alone, of course, but unsupported means no resupplies of food or fuel. And so my sled has to be, you know, very heavy because I have to put, 
you know, as much food and fuel as I basically think that I can pull from the start. Um, and uh, it's barely enough to make the crossing, you know, if, if at all. The guy who attempted the year before me, also very strong, you know, prolific uh, explorer, you know, he had, ran low on supplies and ultimately had to abandon his project. And so my sled was a 375 pounds to start as a result. And like hour one, day one, like I'm pulling my sled and I'm like, uh, <laughs> I think it might be impossible. Like I, I actually think I might name the project the right thing. It looks like it might be impossible. Um, and so, uh, Jenna, as she often does in my lowest moments, fortunately, I was able to get her on the satellite phone and, you know, she encouraged me, you know, make it to that first waypoint, you know, you can regroup tomorrow morning. It's just the first half day this, you knew it was going to be super hard, you know, just trying to encourage me to keep going. And I, I wake up on the, you know, so the first day that I was out there was kind of like a half day by the time I got dropped off to my starting point, but I'm waking up this morning, my first you know night spent alone on the ice. I'm waking up this morning. I've still got nearly a thousand miles in front of me. And I decide, again, I am the story that I tell myself. And I don't know if I fully even believe the words, but I sit up straight in, the, you know, in, my, uh, in my tent in Antarctica and I kind of shout out to the you know, boundless horizon of nothingness, you know, Colin, you are strong, you are capable. You are strong, you are capable. Um, and it ended up being the thing that I said to myself, you know, every single morning when my alarm woke up, you know, as I got more and more worn down and beat down through the days and I'm, you know, battling, you know, you know, some you know, frostbite issues on my face and I'm losing a ton of weight and all these things. It, I just started the day with that. And I think it's a really, you know, it was a very powerful mantra for me. But I think mantras like that or, you know, that same mantra or, or you know, derivatives of that are powerful ways because you start just saying those things to yourself. Um, instead of waking up and going first thing in your mind, very easy to go like, Oh my God, it's day 47. I have to go drag my sled for another 12 hours. And it's minus, you know, 50 degree wind chill out there today. And my sled's super heavy. And it's like, yes, I'm going to have all of those thoughts, but starting the day with like being like, Nope, that's a blank mind. Colin, you are strong. You are capable. You're strong. You're capable. Um, made a huge difference for me. And it's been a powerful way to kind of reorient my mindset towards the positive uh, in many things. Yeah. And I think it's um, it's relevant or important to, to mention that, you know, to make it relatable to people who aren't on these epic journeys or epic adventures in their own lives. Um, effectively, they are in some regard, hopefully, like to be able to start your day like that. So whether it's going to the office or, you know, getting the 20 minutes in to go to the gym or how you handle, you know, work, dealing with your kids and getting them to school and things like that. I think there's a lot to be said for being able to incorporate that into your own life, not just these like outstanding or epic challenges, so to speak. A hundred percent. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. For um, sure. Let me let me ask you this about your uh, triathlon career. What was your favorite race as a triathlete? Oh God, that's an interesting question. So, um, I raced. Uh, you know, I raced triathlon professionally at, at all the distances. You know, um, but I primarily raced the ITU circuit, which mm -hmm. is the, as you were well aware, the you know the draft legal Olympic distance racing, um, and you know that was that was really fun because it was very global. Um, but the circuit kind of changes every single year from different cities and things like that. So there actually wasn't as, you know, in terms of when I think of favor, I'm like, oh, what race did I do like five times? And there mm -hmm. never was that because it seemed like every year or two, the, the calendar would kind of shift. Um, and I would go, you know, to other places. There's, there's a few that stand out for me, um, in terms of, for different reasons, you know, um, let's see, you know, I, I raced in Zimbabwe twice, uh, which is like, you know, wasn't. 
just it's such a unique experience to be, you know, in Zimbabwe and staying with this local guy on his farm. And, you know, there's great athletes out there, you know, Henry Schumann, which is, you know, mm-hmm. Olympic bronze medalist was racing out there from South Africa and things like that. So still, you know, some, some great athletes out there, but such a kind of unique corner of the world that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. I remember, you know, racing in Estonia and Latvia, ultimate racing in you know, 25 countries, many of which are places I wouldn't necessarily um, have visited. So those stand out, you know, one of my, I guess, you know, prouder kind of breakthrough moments was, uh, you know, winning a half Ironman, uh, the Rev3 Anderson, South Carolina race, um, 2014, maybe. Yeah, 24. It's been a number of years now. Um, And so that was a, you know, kind of a a breakthrough moment for me to win that race. But, you know, for me, it's funny when I think back on my triathlon career, I think less about specific races, obviously, you know, winning that, you know, Chicago triathlon, my first race was obviously a huge moment in my life. But more I think about the sort of totality of all of it, of all the races. Um, you know, I was so fortunate that, you know, Jenna, for the most of my triathlon career was actually on the road full time with me and helping to, you know, support again the business side and kind of cutting her teeth on, you know, learning about sponsorships and logistics and messaging and all these things ultimately have built into these global projects that yeah. we have. But, you know, her and I also made this kind of decision, no matter where we go, I think, in my opinion, and not to be critical of other athletes, but I think it's really common in professional triathlon for people to have a lot of stamps in their passports, but basically see airports, hotel rooms, and the race course, and they finish the race, and they're back on the plane, back to their training camp or to the next race. And I realized for myself, I was like, you know what? I really want to race, and I want to race at a high level, but I don't want to waste the opportunity of being in some of these places. So Jen and I kind of made a firm commitment that no matter where we raced, much to the chagrin of my coaches at times, we were going to stay a day or two longer. Nothing crazy, but like go see a little bit Mm -hmm. of somewhere where we are. And so as much as fondness as I have for the races themselves, you know, I have fondness for like the edges of like, those experiences. Like, you know, I race a, a you know, World Cup in Chengdu, China. And then afterwards, Jenna and I and a few other athletes from the race spent a day going and seeing the giant pandas in the sanctuary there. You know, yeah. I've raced uh, I've raced in Japan three times, the Osaka ITU twice and uh, at Ironman Japan. Love Japan as a country and so grateful that triathlon brought me those places. And there's things from those races that stand out. But I also love, um, you know, Jenna and I climbed Mount Fuji after mm. one of those races with 10,000 other Japanese people in this super unique environment of climbing mountains, um, you know, in, in the way that it's done in Japan, which is just kind of unique in its own self. Or, you know, having my family come over there and after Ironman Japan, which is my last professional race, you know, going to these Japanese onsens, these incredible like Japanese spas and things like that. So for me, it's like the full when I look back now, obviously at the time I was really worried about my world ranking and points and sponsors and all this kind of, of course, stuff. Yeah. But as I've gotten a little more distance from it, I realized that triathlon and having these goals and training so hard to be up these races and high perform also allowed me this sort of larger breadth of life experience with family and friends and adventure that I also cherish just as much as I did at the time, specifically on the race course. Yeah, great answer. Um, and the reason I threw that question in is because there's a lot of tri geeks who love uh, listening to these and reading the yeah. articles. So I wanted to to give a uh, tip of the cap. But advice for yeah. those people listening: go and see things, do other things other than race. Don't be so Absolutely. concerned about look, your result. And I'm saying, you know, we would do it after the race. It's not like we'd go yeah. there and be like, oh, we're on vacation. Or whatever. Like, <laughs> I would go there. I'd be super focused, my nutrition, everything dialed, everything. And then we'd be like, but like, 
you've you've spent all this money and time to fly to this other side of the world like go like go do something go for do a day something or two. like yeah. you know like let your you know mind off it's not you're not going to lose your fitness for your next race in fact it's probably going to be better for you to have a little bit of recovery get your mind and body right no matter what the result when the race was um so that would be i would definitely recommend that for sure great yeah. advice that's awesome yeah. um yeah. do you miss swim bike run i know you're Obviously, with your uh, projects and the work you're doing now and the adventures you take on, there's a lot of specific training. But do you miss that kind of cross-training, swim, bike, run, um, you know, being able to do a, a multiple number of sports? You know, I, I always love triathlon. I, uh, it certainly was fun for me after being a single sport athlete for most of my life before that as a swimmer, you know, throughout my childhood and, you know, college career. Uh, it was, uh, you know, really fun to be able to swim and bike and run and do that. You know, I don't miss I don't miss it so much. You know, I really enjoy what I do now. But, uh, you know, still swimming, biking and running do form, you know, the base of a lot of my aerobic training and stuff like that. You know, when I'm not when I can't, you know, get outside or whatnot. So it's something that I absolutely love. And, you know, swimming, of course, my first love is still a big part of my life. You know, I don't necessarily go grind out, you know, swim sets at the local <laughs> pool too often anymore. But I love to get in the open water and love to stretch it out in the water. So, yeah, I still still have a great fondness for all three of those sports. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know if I'm going to be on a professional triathlon race course anytime soon. <laughs> That's awesome. I, um, I'm actually getting ready for a gravel cycling race in Steamboat Springs in a couple of weeks now. So, Cool. Uh, but I've been throwing in some running and swimming and obviously gym work and stuff into the program because I didn't want to just, you know, ride my bike all the time. I do love that variety that comes with, you know, being average at three sports like most triathletes. <laughs> um, now, you've talked about your uh, adventures or your the things that you've taken on as being um, your art. And when I was growing up, I didn't really consider myself creative at all. And I think I've heard you say something similar. And, you know, I looked at creative as people who are into arts or music or traditional kind of like artistic endeavors. But I've found in myself that my creativity comes from being able to tell stories and being able to talk to people like you and craft stories from that. Um, and so I now kind of put myself in that creative bucket. And I think you do the same with your, you know, your physical creativity. Do you want to talk more about how that kind of shift in your mentality um, has impacted that work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> you know, the biggest thing, you know, for me uh, has actually been exactly what you just said, like a mindset shift. You know, for me, I uh, for a long time thought of myself as an athlete and I was like, oh, you know, I'm not an artist. I'm not creative. You know, I don't paint pictures or, it's, you know, things like that. But I've realized that really, you know, these projects specifically are really art pieces. You know, really it starts with Jenna and I, you know, on a whiteboard dreaming up an idea and taking that, you know, that idea and turning it actually into the training, you know, the, the sharing with the world when I'm actually doing one of these expeditions, all the outreach we do with school kids, um, you know, all the different sort of mediums of storytelling from speaking to writing books to, um, you know, film and TV, you know, all the different sort of mediums like that really combined to create this large tapestry of, of art and creativity. And so it's been fun, um, you know, whenever I had that epiphany a few years ago to think of like, oh, wow, like I am not, you know, a creative, I guess, in the way that I've always thought about mm -hmm. it, but creativity really is with inside all of us. And my, you know, expression and my canvas that I paint on happens to just be, you know, the ends of the earth and mountaintops at this point. But uh, it is a creative expression in itself. And I think that, you know, innately as humans, we are inspired by creativity and expression and people being their full and realized self. Certainly I'm so inspired by other people who do that in a multitude of different mediums. And my medium just happens to be, you know, like I said, endurance sports. What, what would you say, like, what would advice would you have for um, anyone who 
is maybe sitting, you know, at their desk listening to this at work or on the way to work, you know, listening on the on the radio or what have you. Like, if they want to um, have an outlet for their creativity, be it in a physical sense or, you know, in another sense of their life, what advice would you have for them to kind of start pursuing that or start um, taking things like that on? You know, I think that, like you, like you just mentioned, it, it can be really anything. It can be, you know, fine arts. It can be sports. It can be business. It can be love. It can be, you know, meditation. You know, there's a million different things that people can be passionate about. I think one, it's identifying what that passion is. And I always tell people, you know, I ask this question to them, what's your Everest? You know, what's your a big, massive goal that you have out there in your life? Um, and and dream, dare to dream as greatly as possible. Like I said, in any one of those buckets, it doesn't matter what the bucket is, but dare to dream very greatly. What do you, you know, picture yourself in the future, you know, achieving something that you want to achieve. And I think at that point, you know, that I call that the dream phase. That's the point where it's like, oh God, one day I'd love mm -hmm. to have, you know, a successful entrepreneurial venture or something like that. But then you like sit back with yourself and you're like, well, like, but I don't really know anything about business and I don't really know anything about how to start. And I really have to like have this other job to pay my bill. You know, and you start like all the, I can't, I shouldn't, I won't doubt. And I say to people, I say, set that big goal, mm -hmm. but then like figure out what that first step is. Literally just go like, okay. I want to start this business. Yeah, that's a long-term pursuit, and it seems overwhelming, just like when you're standing literally at the base of Mount Everest, you look up to the summit, and you think, it's impossible to be able to walk all the way up there. Yeah. But then you're like, but I can at least take the first step, and the second step, and the third step. So you know, condense that into, I would say, set a massive goal in whatever pursuit it is. Then don't forget, figure, don't worry about the thousands or millions of steps you might have to take to get to the end goal. Literally, just say, what can I do tomorrow? What little thing? Can I Google or read one article about this passion? Can I go have coffee with one person who I know that might you know, be able to teach me something? And then from there, the next step will unfold, the next step will unfold. And all of those sort of micro steps and incremental goals along the way will lead up, you know, to that summit of your dreams. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. I think, you know, taking that first step and a lot of people don't get caught in that dream phase, you know, and it's not even a sitting back and thinking about those things. It's like a moment. It's an instant thing. Like, oh, imagine if I could do that. And then before you've even finished that thought, all the I can't, so I won't, so I shouldn't come in before you've even got that full thought formed. So um, great, great advice. Now, um, we've talked a little bit about your, your, um, I guess your amazing achievement and world record in Antarctica. But one thing I'm really interested in was got me really jazzed up was to talk about your uh, 50 summits of the US. And I think you broke the record there, 21 days. Uh, obviously, logistically, Jenna, good job with <laughs> making sure that happened. Um, tell me about that. And I've heard you talk about the Forrest Gump effect, which I think is really cool. So, yeah, I'd love for you to share more about that um, that project that you took on. Yeah, so in the summer of 2018, um, also the same year that I was going to embark on Antarctica later in the year, um, I uh, you know, had my sights for a couple years set on this goal of breaking the world record for climbing the tallest mountain in each of the 50 U.S. states, faster than anyone had ever done before. Um, the previous record was 42 days. Um, it had been lowered by about one or two days in the you know, subsequent years. It was 45, 43, 42. Um, and I looked at the project and go, that looks like so much fun. You know, one... You know, I wanted to climb a bunch of these mountains anyways. Yeah. Um, but also after, you know, setting the world record for the seven summits and the Explorers Grand Slam, I spent a lot of time speaking to students all over the United States. And, you know, students are fascinated by this story. But oftentimes I would find myself, you know, in, in a school in Florida or in a school, you know, somewhere where there's not a lot of mountains. And the kids would say, like, I mean, that's cool to hear about, like, climbing in Nepal. But, like, we're not exactly, like, in, like, an out thriving outdoor community in some mm -hmm. of these states or, you know, states with mountains. And it got me thinking. I was like... But there are, you know, mountains or at least a high point in each one of the 50 U.S. states. Obviously, some are pretty low. 
in the case of Florida, you know, you've got a 350 foot hill on the side of the highway, basically, um, you know, but it's still the high point in Florida. And so as Jen and I crafted this project to set this world record, what we said is, you know, my passion was to break the world record, of course, but we wanted it to be this open invitation. So we invited everyone, as we called the Forrest Gump effect, to literally come join us, you know, come Come to a mountaintop, come to a trailhead, hike a mile with me, meet me on the summit, whatever it is, come out and participate. Um, you know, we had, you know, people that, you know, joined for several mountains. We had people who joined just for one. You know, there's an you know, 80-year-old woman who walked a mile to the summit of, you know, Illinois' highest peak, which is called Charles Mound on this. You know, it's not a huge mountain, but like, you know, to, to walk and talk with this woman who had lived in, you know, the Midwest her entire life and ask her about her life. It was this incredible way to kind of have this two-way art piece. Again, mm-hmm. you know, this is this art analogy. It was this you know sort of collaborative art piece of all these people across the country coming out to participate and ultimately i was able to climb all 50 states in just 21 days you know basically halving the record you know starting with denali in alaska the same day i summited denali basically that by that night i was in hawaii and then this crazy logistical um insane lack of sleep moment of going through these 50 states but it was amazing to have so many other people come out and join us it was one of for me one of the most fun projects that i've ever been a part of yeah that's really cool and i think um thinking about then antarctica later in the year so this forest gump effect you've got all these people it's you know a big community that you're creating go to antarctica and you're basically there alone and there was one other guy that you were basically racing or competing against to get across antarctica but effectively you're you're there alone can you share with me like what was that feeling like or the dichotomy of those two two experiences for you yeah you know when we started planning both of these projects and really looked at 2018 in totality it was uh for lack of a better word no pun intended, but polar opposites, right? Like mm-hmm. literally, um, you know, this project, this 50 high points project that was very accessible, that had lots of people being able to participate in. And then of course, as you said, in Antarctica, the goal was to become the first person to cross Antarctica solo, completely alone, unsupported and unassisted. So no use of kites or dogs and no use of, you know, resupplies of food or fuel. So it really is the most kind of lonely project you could possibly have. So it was fun to and earlier in the year have this project that involved all of these other people. But what I realized through, you know, sort of the storytelling and the sharing of both projects is, yes, in Antarctica, no one was able to actually physically join me out there. Of course, Mm -hmm. that was the whole point of it. Um, But I was able to still, I carried this satellite modem, um, which added weight to my sled, but allowed me to post, you know, one sort of low res image every single day up to the satellites. And, you know, all these school kids and these school programs that we do with curriculum, they started, you know, 30,000 school kids around um, the world were following along. And then ultimately millions of people in, you know, different places in the corner as the media started to put attention on it were following along. And it was amazing that, you know, I actually, in this weird way, never felt alone out there. Mm -hmm. As alone as I was, you know, I was so connected to this larger purpose. You know, I like to say we called the project the impossible first because we didn't know if it was possible. But I always said, you know, this project is for anyone who is told their dreams are impossible, you know, to go out and try to do something, but to share it with the world in a way that was hopefully having this ripple effect of positivity to inspire, you know, other people in their life. And so in the end, it was, of course, its own unique thing being all alone, but it also in a strange way actually felt really hyper-connected to, to humanity. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think I it's funny, I, I see a lot of myself in you in the fact that I love that kind of solo time, but you always I always feel I come back from those experiences more connected to the world or myself or, you know, even both because of that time I get to spend by myself. Um, now, I'm very interested to hear from you about the 
the physical side of that experience in Antarctica and the mental side. A lot of endurance sports and people talk about it being mental and, um, you know, in that in that moment or in those 54 days in Antarctica, you're not physically really, you know, getting to a, your heart rate up to super high or you're not stressing yourself physically. Um, obviously, the elements play a part of that. But how much of that experience was mental compared to physical? You know, you know, both played a significant role. Obviously, the physical part was important and crucial. You know, you couldn't do it without the physical training and preparation. Um, you know, since it was unsupported, me no resupplies of food or fuel, it meant that I had to tarry enough in my sled to hopefully make it across the continent and in previous attempts to mine, you know, people had run out of food, run low on supplies, gotten sick as a result, you know, and one person actually died um, attempting the same crossing. Um, and so it's an important thing to get right. But if you just packed, you know, a thousand pounds of food in a sled, like you're never going to be able to pull it. So it's this kind of weird math equation. Ultimately, I started with 375 um, pounds in my sled with all my gear, food and fuel. That's what I began with. And uh, that gave me, <clears throat> You know, I, I pretty much was on my last bite of food when I crossed the continent, more or less. And so, you know, it was really down to a razor's thin margin. But to be able to pull a 375-pound sled to start is incredibly hard, particularly yeah. in, you know, deep and unconsolidated snow, et cetera. So I really had to, you know, I added about 15 pounds of muscle, got a lot bigger than I was in my triathlon racing days, probably about 20, 25 pounds heavier than I was at much of peak, you know, ITU Olympic distance, you know, triathlon racing days, um, because I needed that strength. I also needed a little bit of, you know, fat and, uh, muscle reserves. Cause ultimately I, I know I was eating about 7,000 calories per day, but I was burning 10,000. So right out of the gate, I was at a pretty significant calorie deficit every single day. And inevitably, of course, that led, led to significant weight loss across the time. But, you know, that is the physical component, but if the mental side isn't there, the physical side like really doesn't matter. You know, being alone for 54 days, being challenged in like, you know, harshest and coldest environment in the world um, and that the deep solitude and, and the risk, you know, there's there's a lot of risk out there. If my tent were to blow away, you know, in a storm, you know, boom, you know, probably going to die or, you know, really tragic consequences. You know, so every little thing you had to stay super focused on. Um, for me, one of the biggest things I've done, you know, I believe that the I always say, you know, the muscle, the most important muscle is actually, you know, the six inches between our ears, you know, the, the brain, the mind really is a muscle. And just like if you want to get bigger and stronger by lifting weights at the gym to get your mind stronger, you actually need to work it out. You need to find strategic ways, not just go like, oh, I'm a mentally tough person, but actually a daily practice. And for me, that has, you know, come about in a few ways, you know, primarily of which is meditation. Um, and so long before I ever dreamed of Antarctica, but I was introduced to what's called Vipassana meditation, V-I-P-A-S-S-A-N-A. -A -A. Um, and there's these 10 day silent meditation retreats that sort of teach you the practice of Vipassana. I'd never meditated a moment in my life before this, but I went for my very first uh, Vipassana meditation in 2011. And like I said, it's completely silent, no reading, no writing, no eye contact, about 12 hours a day of meditation, which is a lot of meditation if you've never meditated a minute in your life. Yeah. But for me... It was a profound experience to look inward, to learn about the self-awareness in my mind, how kind of you know, be aware of, of thoughts or fear loops or doubts or moments where I can go, you know what? I am the story I tell myself. So why am I allowing these sort of negative thoughts into my mind? And that practice was so crucial in Antarctica when I was facing such inevitably challenging moments of, of pain and struggle and hardship to realize, you know, that I could refocus my mind in a positive direction or also one of the powerful mantras on the mental side for me that's come up uh, through that meditation practice that was powerful, which is this too shall pass, this too shall pass, this realizing that every moment in some sense is temporary. You know, if you're 
racing a you know a triathlon or your big bike race and steamboat at some point you know your heart's gonna be pounding out of your chest you're exhausted and whatever and it's easy in those moments to tighten up and go like oh my god this is terrible like this yeah. is the worst moment of my life whatever but when i when i'm in those moments and i find myself tightening up I feel like oh this too shall pass like i'm not mm-hmm. always going to be in this storm in antarctica it's not always going to be like this forever and ever and ever like keep putting one foot in front of the other and the moment you know shifts and changes and so that was really valuable but the mental side was such a crucial component to being successful in Antarctica without a doubt yeah and I love the way you, you know you put that this t- too shall pass and I think that uh, what I've found is the fitter that you get the the easier it is to recognize those moments as well and be like okay you don't have to panic you're you know you're feeling like you're running out of energy or your heart's beating out of your chest or the race is going up the road or whatever it's like okay don't panic don't you know, this is not the end of the world. Um, just take a breath and get yourself set back up there. Um, I'm interested to hear about how you tap into that mindfulness meditation on a daily basis. Obviously, you know, not everyone has access to go and spend 10 days meditating, but how do you practice that now? Like, is there, you know, a way that you kind of just get yourself ready or do you have a strict practice each day? Yeah, you know, well, first I will say, of course, 10 days is a lot of time. But what's amazing about these meditation retreats is they're completely free to go. So no cost to you. There's centers all over the world. So if you do have 10 days ever, I just recommend it to everyone, not just athletes, really any person I think can benefit strongly. So I I had to slip that in there. But of course, you know, in a it's hard to find 10 days often, Mm -hmm. you know, in a busy life with, you know, career and kids and all the things that, you know, we have as adults. Um, but, uh, you know, the daily practice is super important. You know, there's there's times in my life when I'm more regimented than I am. I'm never, you know, I'm not perfect, but uh, I do try to have that daily practice, you know, that time to actually, you know, sit and recoup and focus on my breath, you know. You know, from I find that if I can do that, you know, 20 or 30 minutes per day, it's really valuable. But, uh, you know, even if you can only do it for a few minutes, you know, for me, um, you know, having that rhythm, having that routine, you know, a lot has been talked about and podcasts and news recently about morning routines and things like that but you know i think that it, there's a there's a reason it's been talked about because mm-hmm. it's the time of our day that i think generally we probably have the most control over you know get up early and kind of get your mind uh, and body right so for me you know having an intentional practice on a daily level is really important but also in the moments throughout the day you know i might be you know, driving in my car, it's like I'm going to close my eyes and meditate. But it's, you know, turn off the radio for a second and just kind of be present in that moment. Or, um, you know, find myself, I'm, I'm just as guilty as anyone of being addicted to my phone and, you know, looking at social media or, you know, whatever else, you know, you can get, you know, sucked in there. But uh, I find myself in these moments sometimes saying to myself, oh, like I'm waiting for an elevator right now or I'm, you know, waiting in an office or something like that. Like, you know, I'm not going to pull up my phone for a second. I'm going to take, you know, five minutes and just kind of be, you know, kind of check in with myself, go inward, you know, check in with my mind and my body. And so I think that that uh, is really important as well, just kind of finding those moments in your day to day that naturally occur when you can just be a little bit more present and aware. Yeah, that's great. Um, with that, do you do you often um, or are you finding now that you're kind of your mind's now wandering onto like what's next? What's the next ex- expedition? What's the next project? Like, do you kind of get caught up in that or are you just living in, you know, in your own time now and, and in the moment right now? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I'm i not someone at this point in my career or life where I feel like I need to, like, add more notches to the belt. So I'm not like, oh, my God, how can I one-up the next thing and the next thing and, you know, make this a bigger deal and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, just like I think in the creative process, you know, it's finding what's that spark of creativity. What's the next thing that's really going to interest me at this point that can have impact um, that I'm curious about exploring um, and, and through that methodology, candidly, I uh, do have my next expedition in mind and I am beginning to plan it. It's not public yet, 
um, but it will be public pretty soon. Um, and so there is another expedition uh, forthcoming on the books that I'm very excited about. Um, as well as, you know, the other things I'm working on right now, I've, you know, I'm writing a book, um, which has in itself been a flexing, like I said, a different kind of muscle, that the mental muscle um, of really kind of going back through my life and my journey in Antarctica and, and bringing that together in a way. I think, you know, I do a lot of public speaking, but I think words and storytelling is so powerful. So to have this, you know, time to be able to sit down and write, you know, long form a book um, has been a really you know, challenging, but also cathartic and beautiful process. And so, you know, those have been the things that I've been really, you know, focused on this year is really writing that book. But yes, planning for the future as well and what other expeditions that uh, I want to go out and do in the world. And tell me about the book and tell me about that process for you. Are you writing it yourself? Do you have a ghostwriter? Are you having someone helping? Like, what's that process like for you? Do you schedule an hour a day to write or is it kind of when you find the, you know, the, the moment of creativity to put words on paper? How has that process or that um, experience been for you? You know, it's been a great experience. I've been writing since I was a little kid. I have, you know, journals from, you know, when I was, you know, young teenager all the way out, you know, through my life. And so writing uh, has been a, you know, somewhat daily process for many different, you know, definitely in all my expeditions and big travels in my life, but also, you know, through this, just, you know, mundane day to day, I've written a lot throughout my life handwritten journals. So it's nice to have so many actual words on the page as well as, um, you know, archival, you know, video. And I, I've tried it. A lot of my expeditions, um, particularly this book goes throughout my entire life, but it's focused around the structure of Antarctica. Um, and since I was out there alone, I did all these like video diaries and video like journaling and all this kind of stuff. So it's amazing that I have all of this sort of dialogue and all this stuff that has already brought to life, um, to bring into the book. Um, but that, you know, I, I don't know if mean, perhaps some people do write books this way. It's certainly not the process that would probably work well for me where you like go off and sit alone for six months and come <laughs> back with this beautiful, like, you know, 300 page manuscript. Um, you know, this is, this is a team sport in a lot of ways, you know, everything that I've done in my life and in my business, you know, I mentioned Jenna frequently and that's because it really is, you know, both everything we do is both of ours as we bring this to life. Yes. This, this book is going to have, you know, my name on the cover, but it's a story of, of our life and our creativity. So of course she's deeply embedded in it. Um, another guy who works with me, you know, Blake Brinker, um, is incredibly involved every single day and reviews, reviewing words and reading it. And of course, I have my editors and things like that. So, you know, there's a lot of people at the end of the day, by the time this book is on the shelf, that will have touched it and contributed it to whatever. But it also, you know, comes from a core place of, of my words and my language and really, you know, getting that down on the page. So there's, there's no one, you know, specific, it's not like every day I write X amount and this. Yeah. It's like, you know, right now, you know, just before this phone call, I'm like, you know, editing some, you know, specific chapter of this inlay paragraph that I put in a few weeks ago and revisiting, you know, what does it exactly fit? Or, you know, how does this link to this? You know, it's the huge puzzle piece, you know, really, you know, in the end, but uh, it's a fun process. It's a, uh, it's not as linear. You read a book from beginning to end, but yeah. uh, at least my experience has not been that you write, you know, word one to yeah. you know, word 90,000 and that's you just it. go all the way through one, no. one, <laughs> one, one take. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. Uh, that's cool to hear. And I think um, I'm a big believer in like everything happens for a reason. And obviously, you know, things happen to people, but the fact that you were able to like write as a teenager and, and capture some of those stories, probably like for no reason other than you enjoyed that experience and now to be able to use that material many many years later to put together this beautiful book that the world will see like that to me is like it's serendipitous and that's it was meant to be type of thing absolutely absolutely um, yeah that's really cool and I, th I think you mentioned february is when the books come the book comes out yeah the publishing date uh is february 11th so uh yeah you can pre-order it right now it's already up on amazon everything like that 
Uh, the book is called The Impossible First, um, which was also the name of the Antarctica Project. And uh, yeah, it's a memoir about Antarctica, but like I said, kind of goes through all my, you know, in formative moments in my childhood and throughout my life that got me to Antarctica. It's not just like a linear retelling of this singular moment um, yeah. and covers more than that. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. And we'll, we'll definitely link to that to make sure everyone gets to see where that is. Um, and then are you going to do a tour? Are you going to do the, do the whistle stop tour um, and, you know, maybe include some of your expeditions or uh, outdoor adventures on the tour as well to, to kind of be authentic to yourself? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, for us, it will definitely be a whole coordinated effort of, you know, getting this out into the world and sharing it and certainly doing all the publicity and touring around that to make sure it's as, you know, far reaching as possible. It's already getting, you know, translated into several languages and things like that. So it's really, really exciting. And um, we're going to have a uh, young readers edition of the book as well. So the book itself will be adapted um, into uh, not like a not like a picture children's book, but, you know, more a chapter book still, but in a little bit, you know, simpler form for grade level reading and stuff like that. So I'm really excited about that as well, to have both kind of versions out in the world um, for different audiences. It's really exciting. That's awesome. Um, Now, you mentioned uh, previously or just before uh, for people to find their Everest. And I know that uh, Mark Hodjalich from uh, 29029 introduced us and he's been uh, someone I've stayed in touch with, and we actually did a story on him on Inner Voice last year. And um, he's a, he's an amazing guy, um, and he introduced us. And I I want to talk to you specifically about twenty nine oh twenty nine because I know that you've been um, involved in a few of the events now and are, are increasing your involvement. But what did you think of when you first heard about twenty nine oh twenty nine? You know, I think it's an incredible idea. It's uh, you know twenty nine oh twenty nine. Those numbers. Uh, specifically add up to the number of feet above sea level that Everest is. And so it really is, you know, symbolic of the Everest summit. And of course, as I've gone around and talked to people about summiting Everest, there's a lot of intrigue and fascination about the mountain the same way that I had as a kid. But, you know, it's not accessible to everyone for a number of reasons. Of course, it's time consuming, it's expensive, it can be dangerous. Um, and, you know, people at certain phases of their life are like, yeah, I've always dreamed about climbing Everest. But to be honest, like, you know, I'm you know, 40 years old and I have young kids, I'm probably not going to, you know, make that happen in this lifetime. But there's still this excitement around that. And of course, Everest just being a great metaphor, a great goal. As I said, I ask that question all the time. Well, you know, what is your Everest in your life? And so the 2929 is an event series um, where, you know, people can actually, you know, basically climb Everest in a sense. And it started out in Stratton, Vermont. And now we have a few other locations in Utah. You know, next year, there's going to be a couple other events around the country um, <clears throat> where people uh, can come to a ski resort, basically, in the off season. So when there's not snow, uh, you know, August and August and October, when the events currently are held. And uh, the Stratton, Vermont one it was the very first event that I, you know, I was there for at the, the inaugural event. And it's amazing. So you climb up underneath the gondola, basically, of Stratton, Vermont, and every lap is about 1,700 vertical feet. So 17 laps of a single, you know, climb up the gondola equals 29,020 feet. And you have 36 hours over the course of a long weekend uh, where there's, you know, it's really amazing how it's set up. There's kind of glamping tents and food and music and an incredible community of folks all participating in the event. And, uh, you know, as you hike up this mountain, you count off the laps and hopefully, you know, reach 17 laps, which is, like I said, like climbing Everest from the base. And it's a it's a massive challenge. It's not an easy thing. You know, I think, uh, you know, I've participated in the event 
Um, and uh, I think the fastest anyone has been able to finish the the event that I know of so far is somewhere like 14 or 15 hours. And that's, you know, no stops, just cranking super hard the entire time. Uh, you know, my first time around was, was roughly that. Um, but, uh, you know, to get it in in 36 hours, in, even in itself, is massively challenging. One thing I love about the 29 or 29 events is it's not so much of a race. It's actually this, this, it's kind of, you know, it's you against you. It's a personal challenge. And since you're basically lapping this course over and over and over again, you take the gondola down and you just, you're only hiking one way. You're hiking up. Um, and inevitably, of course, the, the participants, usually 200 or so participants per event, pretty small um, group of people, get spread out and people, you know, are on their own paces. And so if you're faster or you're slower, it's not as if in an Ironman where like everyone starts at the same time and the pros leave and you'll never see each other ever again until, you know, the finish line afterwards. Mm-hmm. In this case, since you're on the same course, it's amazing because you're actually passing each other. And the, uh, you know, Mark has done such an amazing job with building the culture around the event series where it's just so participatory. Everyone there is there for their own reasons, have incredible stories. And people are talking as they walk up these mountains, maybe a little bit out of breath, but they're, you know, riding a gondola ride down. And so um, the people that I've met at the events when I've been there have been extraordinary and so inspiring for me. And it's just been a community um, that I've really loved. And it's amazing to now be, you know, diving deeper to be a, you know, a co-founder of the, the event series as we grow it. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think I've had the privilege of talking to many of the participants who have been involved in the event. And Mark had told me how much of a life-changing or a life-impacting um, experience it is for people. And it's hard to really get a grasp on that until you've either done it or you've t- you know spent some time having really in- insightful um, conversations with people who have done it. And every single person I've talked to has mentioned how much of an impact it has had on their lives and the, peop- and the lives of the people around them. And these are people who aren't necessarily athletes. These are people who are, you know, maybe a marathon was on their bucket list to do one day um, and maybe they did it, maybe they didn't, but they've been able to commit to something that's bigger than themselves, um, commit to something that they probably thought they would never be able to achieve and come away from it really impacted and really changed. Have you, you know, experienced that as well in the people that you've spoken to and, and met at these events? A hundred percent. You know, it, it is just amazing to see that transformation in people. You know, probably the and I, have, I have many stories that I could share of the people that I've met, you know, having participated in it for a couple of years and knowing you know, many people from this community now. But, you know, my very first experience in Stratton, Vermont in 2017, when the, the, the event began, you know, I was there. Didn't know anybody really at the event. You know, you get put in these tents, uh, which are, you know, kind of you know, nice tents. You know, you got to put a little, little bed inside there. So, obviously, you can rest in between. And uh, the two other guys in the in my tent happened to live in Atlanta. And there was, you know, a contingent of people from Atlanta, but not all people that knew each other, all people that met at the event. And they were, you know, just like you said, guys were like, you know, maybe one day I'll, you know, do some, you know, a marathon or something like that. These are not like, you know, hardcore athletes, no hardcore endurance athletes. Like, oh, I've done 10 Ironman and this, you know, crazy ultra endurance, nothing. And they mm-hmm. do this race and it was so mind blowing for all this, this group of people that ultimately this, this group of eight people kind of formed on the flight back to Atlanta. They said, oh my God, that was amazing. Let's do something else. You guys live in Atlanta. Let's all train for something. And ultimately they put on their calendar for the following summer, the Leadville 100, um, which included Mark Hodowick doing that mm-hmm. with them. None of them had, you know, done anything like that before this. And in nine months, they all trained together and ultimately raced the Leadville 100 all together. Um, you know, five of the eight participants, uh, you know, of, of these eight, uh, they call themselves the Boundless Eight. They finished the, uh, the race. Five of them finished the race. 
um, and, and three of them, unfortunately, you know, didn't finish or, you know, got time cut or whatever. Um, and then one of those guys, which is an amazing continuation of this, you know, now we're two years into this journey, uh, two weekends from now, all of them are returning back to help the guy who didn't finish make a second attempt on it. And I'm actually going to be out there this weekend or that weekend with them in two weeks to support him. And so it's just been this amazing community that has formed. And now these, you know, their, their families are going on vacations together. They're, you know, training together. There's really a brotherhood and a, and a great camaraderie that is formed from that. And so that's just one example. But this community is so tight knit. You know, it's, it's this basically this great, you know, catalyst in this moment of doing this hard thing together, climbing these 29029 feet, you know, collaboratively together, having this shared experience at being the starting point for community and relationships and, uh, you know, sort of ambitious goals and dreaming. And it's incredible what happens. I think, you know, it's easy to be like, you know, have lunch with somebody or grab a beer or something like that. But there's nothing about like the bonding that can be formed from a shared experience like the 2929 that totally fosters that and, may, you know, at, begs the question, which is, what is my next Everest? What's mm -hmm. the next mountain I want to climb? And are, these are the these are the like-minded type of people that I want to do those types of things with. And so you're there with 200 other like-minded individuals. The creativity and inspiration in that moment is profound. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, you know, people not necessarily being ultra-endurance athletes, but I've actually had friends who are, you know, multiple-time Kona finishers and, you know, um, Olympians and people who have done the event that thought, oh, you know, this is going to be super easy or this is going to be whatever. And it turns out that it is a different type of challenge. It is back to what we talked about. There is the physicality of it. You are having to climb 29,029 feet. There's no way to get around it. But there's this mental approach that you need to take that, okay, I just need to keep going one step at a time. So there, I feel like there's also this generation of people like myself who are endurance athletes, a little bit jaded by the Ironman scene or by, you know, traditional mass participation events that could really use something like this in their life where it's a little less serious there's a little less gear and drama and what have you and um you know stress and anticipation that could really use an experience like 29029 to still get that physical benefit but to challenge themselves in a different way a hundred percent i mean it's um it's like you said you can you can be somebody who has never trained seriously for an endurance event and it's accessible to you because all it requires is basically grit, the determination to do it, and the ability to walk. You know, mm -hmm. really you're walking, you're hiking uphill. Yep. But at the same time, like you mentioned, yeah, similar to you. You know, I know several, you know, Olympians, incredible athletes, you know, myself included, who have done this event. And like it's not easy. Like it doesn't come easy. Like I said, like the basically the fastest ish that you can finish this is 15 hours of like nonstop climbing. And so, and it's also something in a way that you probably never, you know, specifically trained for, um, you know, although people are starting to more specifically train for this event as they've, you know, come back in subsequent years to try it again or, um, you know, but it's just amazing. It really is incredible how, you know, this challenge um, and really just the culture of the entire event really fosters, like you said, this newness, this freshness that I think is well needed um, in this community. You know, I, I obviously am, you know, competitive. And I certainly, you know, have, you know, have enjoyed the successes and races and world records and things that I've, you know, set in my life. But as, as I get, you know, further down my own path, it's really, like I said, this personal journey. And so I love that the ethos of this event is it's you against you and be able to participate in an event with all sorts of other people that have a shared goal, but not feel like you have to look over your right shoulder and your left shoulder, you know, and, and you know, be mean and have your game face on. It's mm -hmm. the opposite. It's a resonant of sort of positivity and positive energy that uplifts this event that you also achieve your goal, but you're so excited to see the other person achieve their goal. I remember there's this guy named Tim Coleman uh, who I met in the first uh, year, 
Um, and, and he, you know, not a, not a lifelong athlete, but had set himself some big goals. And unfortunately, on the first attempt uh, in, in Vermont in 2017, I think he did, you know, nine or 10 laps of the 17. And that's all he could do. You know, he was done. He was out of time. He was exhausted. Um, but he spent the next year, you know, he called me up. He, he messaged people in the community. There's, you know, there's a, there's a Facebook group and people talking to show. He's like, guys, I'm coming back next year. I'm going to do it. And he trained all year for it. And I remember I saw him last year in 2018. He came back. He was one of the first finishers, but they were out the entire year because he had said, hey, I want to come back. I want to you know, set this goal for myself and actually finish it this time. All these people in the community fostered that. I think mm-hmm. you know, he ultimately qualified and ran the Boston Marathon. You know, it's just amazing to see this transformation in his life and this community uplift him and be so happy for his success as they were for their own success. Yeah, and I think I, I've heard stories of you know the one of the really cool moments in the event is when people get their red bib, which signifies the fact that they're on their last ascent, they're heading up the mountain for the last time. Um, and I've heard these beautiful stories of people kind of just stopping and staring and cheering and clapping and shouting down from the gondola and just giving this love to these people who are, you know, obviously clearly almost about to finish. Like, what what can you tell us about that experience yeah, from yourself? Yeah, it's a special moment, you know, you know, 17 laps in Vermont and in the case of Utah, I think it's 13 laps because it's a little bit longer and a little bit uh, more altitude per lap. But uh, it's a lot of laps, and they add up, and you're climbing through the night and all this kind of stuff. And everyone's wearing these white bibs, which is cool because the white bibs, you know, have their name on it. So even if you don't remember someone's name, you're like, oh, hey, you know, go John, you know, go Kelly, you know, whatever that is. You're cheering them on. Um, but then, yeah, you see this red, the red bib start to come out after, you know, hour 20 or so. And there's first you see, oh, that's the first guy with the red bib. And then you start to see more and you realize people are starting to actually achieve this goal. But it's amazing, like I said, because you're doing these laps and I love the gondola is so fun for this reason. You know, someone might be halfway up their lap, but you're coming down the gondola right above them. They've got their red bib on and you can yell out the windows like, yeah, you got it. You know, half a lap left. Um, and so that energy really, you know, as of course people are, implicitly more exhausted, more sleep deprived, et cetera, by the end of the event. Those red bibs really just uplift the energy of the entire event as you realize people are really achieving their goals in that moment. It's just a special moment um, and it's exciting. And for me, you know, even having done the, the event a couple of times, I'll be back at the Utah event and the Vermont event this year, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a great moment when you put that red bib on, you know, you're on the on the last uh, lap of this epic journey. Yeah. Now, what would you, if you had some advice for someone who's kind of hearing about 29029 or they're seeing it or they're watching it happen um, and they might be on the fence, they might be like, oh, maybe it's not for me. Um, what, you know, do you have a piece of advice for someone who might be in that position where they're just not sure whether or not they should give it a shot? You know, I haven't met a single person who has participated in the event that hasn't absolutely loved it. Um, you know, it is, it is an event that is the same way I was saying about, you know, take the 10 days and go to the Vipassana meditation. It is a meaningful transformative event. It's not an event where you're like, Oh God, that was such a waste of my time. Why did I do this? You know, even the people that were disappointed by, you know, not being able to finish their first time or something like that, were still like motivated to come back. Not like, Oh, I didn't finish. And that was such a waste of my time. I mean, it is an event that has such an incredible impact. And I think it's twofold. One is, the event itself is amazing implicitly, but really it's the community that surrounds the entire event that makes it, you know, to me really extraordinary and next level. And so my advice would be if, if you're on the fence about it, you know, d- dive in, you know, the, uh, you know, come, come join this incredible community, this incredible group of people, because it'll be a weekend of your life that will extend in positive ways, you know, well beyond that with, with the community and the other things that inspires you to dream up and goals that you set in your life. That's awesome. Um, 
I, I look forward to obviously spending time there and seeing it. We're going to capture it. We're going to take a bunch of photo and video. And one of the ideas that we have is to is to kind of follow someone's journey uh, over the the entire thirteen summits in in Utah and the seventeen summits, and kind of just watch that like up and down and the the moments of joy and the moments of despair um, come to life, so that they can really look back on that experience and and relive the moments, I guess, which will be a lot of fun. Absolutely. I think that's a great idea. It's, uh, you know, 17 laps and that many hours you can live, you know, you can live a lifetime in, in between each individual lap. You know, there's, there's highs and lows for every single person. Um, you know, Jenna, my wife, she's going to participate in both events this year. I mean, it'll be her first time. So I'm super excited. I've been, you know, talking her ear off about it nonstop these last couple of years since I've been involved with the event. And I'm so excited for her to experience it and see it. Um, it's just a really extraordinary event. Yeah, that's awesome, mate. Um, now, I, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of share, um, you know, how people can follow you, how people can find you, um, you know, maybe some last kind of moments or last pieces of inspiration or motivation for people who might be just, you know, hearing this and saying, you know what, I really want to take something on. So over to you for, for any final thoughts. Yeah, you know, the best way to catch up with me is uh, on Instagram, just my name, at Colin O'Brady. I'm active there. That's definitely where I'll be announcing my next uh, world record project soon. And, uh, it's, you know, I, I don't just like to show the, the journey of the, the project itself, but all the training, the prep, the planning, all of that, the behind the scenes. So um, come check me out on Instagram. Also, my website at Colin O'Brady, sorry, ColinObrady.com, C-O-L-I-N-O-B-R-A-D-Y. That's uh, lots of information about my nonprofit, you know, my public speaking, corporate speaking, all the things like that can be found there. So come say hello over there as well. And definitely, I'm so excited to bring this book to life. Uh, Pre-order the impossible first. Would uh, would love. I'm um, really excited to share that out in the world. But I guess, you know, last parting advice for me, um, you know, I'll keep it in the similar vein. But uh, I did a TED Talk a couple years ago that says, you know, change your mind. It's called change your mindset and achieve anything. Uh, I did that before my Antarctic crossing. But, uh, you know, it it resonates just as strongly the message, which is that's what I believe. You know, if you're if you're thinking about a goal, if you're you're in that dream phase right now, if you know, you're like, oh, I, you know, I want to make a change in my life. I want to, you know, do something extraordinary, you know. Do it. Take that first step. You know, you know. Figure out what what that race is. If you're an excited endurance athlete, put it on the calendar and start training for it. If it whatever that is in your life, like I said, business, love, um, you know, really any sort of avenue, creativity, art, you know, go after it because. You know, I have always found in my life when I've stepped outside my comfort zone, when I've dared to dream greatly, look, I've failed along the ways. But each one of those failures, and as we talked about at the top of this interview, you know, about being burned in this fire in Thailand, it was a horrible experience for me. But at the same time, it taught me some of life's greatest lessons. And so I always say, you know, it's really the, that that's what you have. You only have to lose by not trying. You know, that that is that is the only losing is not trying, not attempting um, to get out of your comfort zone and uh, really make an impact in your own life and the impact in the lives of others as a result. That's brilliant. I, uh, I appreciate you. Your, uh, your time and your energy and your storytelling and your advice and uh, just you being you. It's, uh, it's awesome to connect. And hi to Jenna. Thanks for setting this up and uh, look forward to connecting in, uh, in a couple of weeks in Utah. Awesome, man. Can't wait to meet you out there in person. Looking awesome. forward to it. Thanks, All right, man. Cheers, mate. Bye. Bye. That was Colin O'Brady. And as you heard, Colin has a book coming out very soon titled The Impossible First. There's a link to pre-order the book in the show notes. Also, if you'd like to join the 2929 community and participate in a 2020 event, registration goes live today at 11am. Or if you're listening in the future, 
That's October 29th, and you may have already missed out. Either way, head to 29029everesting.com, and while you're there, hit the Stories tab and check out some of the amazing stories from ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Until next time, this is Inner Voice, and I'm Travis McKenzie.